Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're in the short yet significant New Testament letter of 1 John. John was writing near the end of the first century to many Christians who were either giving up or being tempted to give up on some of the basics of Christian faith. He responds to this by calling them back to correct doctrine, obedient living, and lively devotion. At its heart, this book is calling us to find our life in the life of the beloved, Jesus. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord God, we're grateful for uh, this epistle from John, uh, 1 John, that was written long ago. Uh, to the churches there in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Lord, thank you that this text so speaks to us today. God, I pray that you would give us uh, soft hearts to receive from you. Uh, write the words of your Holy Scripture upon them, that we might more love you and worship and magnify you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so we're back in the epistle of John after a little uh, week hiatus. Last week, we heard from Dale Culp. Uh, from uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, and that really wonderful story there uh, of both the grace of God and the power of God. Um, I mean, there's an enemy, in fact, a commander of the army of the Syrians, Naaman, and he has leprosy. I'm just going to like tell you a little bit about this again because it's such a good story. He has leprosy there, And a servant girl who is a Jewish servant girl, and you have to understand this, that that Jewish servant girl was likely abducted and stolen during a raid of the Syrians. Because this beginning of 2 Kings is mostly about the Syrian and uh, Jewish conflict. And there's all these kind of raids taking place, okay? So this girl was probably taken in one of these raids, and she yet still has compassion on her master, who is a commander of the army who likely did the raid. And says, you know, if you go to the man of God, Elisha, she's referring to Elisha, he can probably heal you. And this man does this, and he does this in an ostentatious way, right? He brings all kinds of coin, all kinds of clothes. They're like just drip swag, kind of like what I have on right here. Like people are like, ooh, that's cool. Ten, Ten changes of clothing like that, right? Like a lot. And he thinks he's going to buy it. And then actually when he goes to Elisha, and Elisha just sends his servant out and says, hey, go wash in the creek there. The guy's like, aren't you supposed to come out and wave your hands over me? Because I'm a big deal. And, um, and then eventually, of course, you know, his servant says, he just said, go wash and be clean. And Naaman does this, right? And he washes and he's clean. And God has grace on his enemies, which is just a story that we find in scripture all over the place. And then we heard this, you know, then he, uh, Dale continued on for us the, the story of uh, Gehazi, who is the servant, right, of Elisha, and who saw all of that money leaving, and he's like, wait, I need to have all that. And so he went and he took it and he hid it, right? And actually, it's really interesting. So in, in both those stories, they both end about, one, it, it says Naaman went away uh, clean, healed of his leprosy. And Gehazi actually has the leprosy at the end. It's flip-flopped. And um, I was thinking about that this week, partly because it's, it's this beautiful story that we have just played out again and again and again in the life of the church, too. 
you know, um, where it's the person that you're like, they can't get it right. They're the enemy of God. And they can't, it clicks for them. And a lot of times people in the church, people like me and you, can be just whitewashed tombs desiring to take and to hoard. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, some of you are familiar with Flannery Connery's work. work. She's always flip-flopping stuff. You know, and the person that you're like, that person shouldn't get grace, and they get it. And the person that you're like, they have all their stuff together, and they just don't get it at all. It's really beautiful. Um, here's why. So I, I tell you that story in part because I want to set up actually the next story, right? Because if you go to the next chapter, 2 Kings chapter 6, there's another really good story. Actually, there's a little story at the beginning of chapter 6 about a, an axe head that falls, and then Elisha throws a stick in, and it floats. And I don't really know what's going on in that story. Um, I've never studied it. I'm sure it's really interesting. And God's teaching us something marvelous through it. But keep in mind, right, the setting is the Syrians, which is a huge superpower. If you remember, so this is like probably early 900s B.C. um, After the division of the kingdoms, the ten northern tribes, and there's the two southern tribes of Israel. And the ten northern tribes are having all these battles with the Syrians. And eventually Assyria, of course, becomes Assyria. And the Assyrians take over the ten northern tribes in 720. So, you know, another 200 years or so. But there's all these raids happening. There's these battles taking place. And what happens is that um, the king of the northern tribes is able to sort of find out what the king of Syria is doing because Elisha is being, uh, having these things revealed by God to him. And so the king of Syria finds out that Elisha is doing this. And he's like, we're going to take care of that dude. Uh, we got we to gotta get him. And so he actually sends his army and they encircle the town where Elisha lives. And one day, and this is where Don picked up in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. I, I mistyped that. It's not, it's not verse 1 and it starts, at least the text. Um, but one day, Elisha's servant walks out the door and he looks around the city and then the Syrian army is surrounding the city. And you can just imagine this like servant walking out going, What's happening? Um, what it says, actually, it says, alas, my master. But you know, you know he didn't say alas. Alas, my master. He's like, ah, come on. There's an army out there. Um, and then Elisha says, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can imagine they're serving. Like, what are you talking about? There's a whole army surrounding us. And Elisha says, God, give him eyes to see. Open up his eyes. And as he does so, he sees sort of the army of God, if you will, surrounding the hillsides, chariots of fire. Eyes to see what God is really doing. It's just amazing. And if you know the story, it goes on and God does a remarkable work of salvation. I'm telling you that in part because sometimes it's really hard to see reality, like what God's really up to, and, and the deeper truths of faith. And sometimes it's also really true to look out in the world and to doubt faith, and to doubt actually God's power and his provision and his ability, and to go, you know what, I think I actually need to give up on this whole God thing and maybe go over here, or at least dumb down some of this because there's so much in the world that is calling for my attention and my desires, and I just want to grab onto that because it feels more secure, more convincing, more compelling. 
Um, you know, it's sort of what happens is that, you know, we, we start like Peter starting to walk on the water, this life of faith. And then we kind of look around. We're like, wait, we're walking on water. This is crazy. We start sinking down, even though we know that Jesus calms the storm. He's got power over all that, but that's scary. And John tells us this. He who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Don't we need to hear that? Um, so John, you know, he's, I've, I've said this a few times, he's giving us these tests at times because he's calling people back to the life of faith. You know, they've lived, now likely it's probably at least bordering on the end of the first century when he's writing this. This is probably one of the latest texts that we have of the New Testament. People have sort of been in the church a while. Maybe it's, they've kind of like given up on some of the basics of Christian faith. And he, he gives them these tests. You might remember there was a moral test, the test of righteousness that he called them to, of loving the things that God loves, uh, having their heart shaped by the righteousness of God. And he gives them a social test, which is this whole new commandment idea that we might love one another, right? And here you could say that he gives them a, a doctrinal test or a test of belief. Like, what are you believing in and how's that shaping you? And, and stick with the core beliefs. And so I, I want us to look at this passage. And I'll, I'll be honest, I had a little bit of a challenge kind of thinking of, of a creative uh, outline for it. And so what I'm going to do, I want us to talk about the content of this belief. And then I want to talk about the characters of the belief. Okay? Okay, content first. Uh, look with me. Um, we're looking at the first John passage. Look with me there, verse 1. It says this. Beloved... Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So first John is giving us an invitation and he says, test stuff. Put your beliefs and what you're hearing and digesting to the test. Don't just go along with anything you hear. Don't be blown here and there with any kind of Tick, uh, teaching that sort of tickles your ears. Um, now, under, to understand this best, I think you have to understand that spirit here in this passage uh, doesn't mean just some ethereal being, you know, kind of out there. Um, this is a concrete kind of idea. Um, he's saying test the teaching that you're hearing. Test uh, the people that have gone out, right? I mean, he says more specifically, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, Eugene Peterson's The Message says it this way. My dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in the world. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers out in the world. There are, there were then and there are now. Again, I want you to keep this context in mind, right? John is likely writing from Ephesus. He's likely, this is a general epistle, meaning it's not given to a specific church like, you know, First and Second Corinthians was written to the Corinthian church, Romans to the church in Rome. Um, the epistles of John are general epistles. Likely they were written to the, the churches, actually that the book of Revelation was written to because those seven churches all kind of more or less are within a, a day's journey of the town of Ephesus where John likely was uh, writing. Um, 
John was the oldest living disciple of Jesus, and so he could speak authoritatively. Um, But he was getting old, and for some people, the message that he spoke was getting old. Kind of getting stale. You know, like a cracker that you bite into and you're like, I don't really like that. I should toss that out. The message wasn't really fitting in with the teaching that the people there in Asia Minor were hearing from their neighbors and other eloquent folk. And so, you know, just like what happens now, um, there were teachers there in that time that were maybe taking some of the truths of Christianity, but they were really mixing it a lot with what's going on around them. Um, they were making a little bit more palatable for the ears of their neighbors and whatnot. And John says, you got to test this, okay? you got to test what's being said. Don't just believe everything that you hear. Not everybody that talks about God is of God. Does it agree with the Holy Scriptures? Does it agree with what you've heard from the beginning? Test it. Um, let me say this, okay. Um, whenever, I think this is a good way to test it. Okay. Whenever the message of Jesus just seems to fit perfectly with any kind of other ideology, there's probably something askew. Okay. If it just fits perfectly, say with a certain kind of uh, nationalism, every single Christian teaching just works like that or a political position, you're like, man, Christianity just fits perfectly with my political party. Probably something's not right. Okay? I'm just going to throw that out there. It's probably not right. Test the spirit. Test the teaching. And I say, I, I get that it's nice to feel like you can just fit in with those around you. But Christian faith, Jesus actually tells you, that's not going to be the case. You are never going to be home until you're finally home. And so learning to live with a degree of homelessness feeling is actually part of what the Christian calling is. Okay? Test the spirits. But um, while this passage tells us, you know, while part of the content is just test the spirits, um, then don't believe everything you're, you're told, here there really is a specific teaching that he addresses, right? So... Um, verse 2 and verse 3. Let's look at that. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Let me read the message again. I think it's really helpful. Here's how you test the genuine Spirit of God. Everyone who confesses openly his faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as an actual flesh and blood person, comes from God and belongs to God. And everyone who refuses to confess faith in Jesus has nothing in common with God. This is the spirit of Antichrist that you heard was coming? Well, here it is, sooner than we thought. And you can imagine that, I I think that's really actually helpful because remember, this is still the first century. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, is writing this. I mean, he he walked with Jesus. And Jesus said that there would be those who speak out against him. And within this first generation, there are those within the church that are beginning to deny the teaching, the core teachings of Christian faith. Uh, Jess, in our staff meeting on Tuesday, 
pointed out, and I think this is really helpful, that what he's speaking of is creedal kind of theology. This is first order, first tier stuff. Um, John is not warning against those who have a different um, church polity, a different view of the sacraments. Uh, he's saying, if you deny the reality of Jesus in the flesh, God taking on flesh and living, and dying and rising to new life, then you've missed the whole thing. You missed the whole thing. This is foundational first order Christianity. Here's another thing we need to sit in. Um, this teaching is the kind of teaching that within the communities that received this letter would have been laughable. God doesn't, God doesn't come in the flesh. God, God certainly wouldn't take the form of a human. These bodies are, are enslaving to us. God would not do that. And one God, one true God to be worshipped, And he died on a Roman cross. Sure, he rose again, whatever. But he died on a Roman cross. I mean, most of the neighbors of the recipients of this letter would have been laughing at that. Paul says it is foolishness to the Greeks. It's foolishness. Why would you believe that? So John is uh, calling them back. Because a lot of people are tempted to go, you know what, my neighbors think I'm a ridiculous person for claiming to worship somebody who would come in the flesh who's also God. And I think I might just give up that. It's kind of too hard. I don't want them to ridicule my neighbors. But think of this too. Okay, um, this, this content here that he is intent on saying you must confess this. Uh, let's, let's sit in this for a moment. If God comes in the flesh, one thing that matters, and this would be in conflict, right, with the time there, is that your bodies matter immensely. And what you do with your body matters immensely. Um, if God comes in the flesh, it matters how you think of your own being as one of great dignity. It also has immense importance for how you treat others. It becomes a lot harder if God actually takes on flesh to objectify other bodies for sexual pleasure or as slaves. It would become a lot harder in that community to go down to the temple brothel if you thought God dignified bodies so much by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. If God comes in the flesh and he really dies and he really comes back to life as a physical being, as a, in a physical fleshly body, then what it also means is that he has all power. That he's the absolute Lord. That if he conquers a Roman cross and death, well, then Caesar is nothing. That you'd have to bow down and give your entire life to Jesus. As the Lord of Lords, as the King of Kings. 
And what I'm suggesting to you is just this little confession that you're making of Jesus in the flesh changes everything. I mean, really, it just absolutely changes your life. It means that you have to live in the community of others, the saints, the life of the church. Because how do you do Christian faith outside of a fleshly existence with other people? And maybe think of this. What we have in Jesus in the flesh is a God who does the unthinkable. And that our minds can't really comprehend, of course. Truly man and truly God. And not in like a 50-50 kind of way, but in a 100%, 100% kind of way. Doesn't really make sense to us. God beyond our comprehending. And a God who dies and yet lives, that's the unthinkable. And if he can do that, then maybe he can do far more than we ask or we see. If God comes in the flesh... It means that our sin is a really big deal. I mean, Jesus actually dies. That we might be washed and clean. But it also means that God loves us immensely. So much more than we could possibly imagine. The Lord actually, for the joy that was set before him, he does this. It changes everything. You can't be from God, not the Christian God, and deny that Jesus comes in the flesh. So this is the content. This is the content of this passage, testing the spirits, but specifically the importance that you must confess that Jesus comes in the flesh and all that comes along with that. But uh, second, I want us to consider the second part of this passage just by considering the characters. And if you actually look in these, at these characters, you'll see that there's the yous, there's the theys, and there's the uses. okay? Verse 5, the yous, or verse 4, the yous, verse 5, the theys, and verse 6, the uses. I know uses isn't a word, okay? Um, you, you can write me an email and tell me if you want, but I know. Um, I want to take those in reverse order, okay? Verse 6, this is what it says. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us. I just want to acknowledge, I wanted to take these in reverse order because I, I want to acknowledge how absurd that verse sounds at first to us. Um, it sounds like the height of arrogance. It... Um, it sounds like something that a lot of pastors and a lot of religious leaders, a lot of cult leaders would say to abuse their power, to tell people all the things they got to do, uh, to take advantage of others. Hey, I speak from God. You got to do what I say. Um, I know this sounds like that, but I, I want to I just sit with this for a moment because it's important here in 1 John, um, that you understand that this is, this is being written by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, uh, who speaks with the apostolic message, which is actually consistent with all of the New Testament. All the New Testament is the apostolic message. It's that first generation of, with Jesus that wrote it. Even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, saw Jesus 
in Acts chapter 9, the blinding light. But John here is speaking of this idea of the importance of Jesus coming in the flesh. He's saying that you've got to listen to me. And if you don't, you're not from God. And he's, he's the one that can say this. I laid my head against his breast. I was there when he was crucified on the cross and he looked down to his mother and he said, mother, behold your son. And he looked down right at me while he's hanging on the cross and said, John, behold your mother. And so this kind of verse here is not something that any pastor or religious leader should be able to say, but John can say it perfectly. He was with Jesus. He said, if you do not get this, if you cannot hear my words about the importance of the reality of Christ in the flesh, you're not of God. It's a categorical difference from those who would abuse uh, spiritual authority. Okay, so, so it's very important that you understand who it is that's speaking here, the us. This is key. John is saying, I saw him. I touched him. I saw the, the enfleshed Christ crucified on the cross, and I saw him as he rose to new life. The second group of people we have here is the theys. Okay, verse 5. They are from the world. They speak. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. I want you to hear this. This is important. He is not just speaking about those who are outside of the church. Okay. Remember, he's talking about false prophets. That's actually what he began, verse, chapter 4, verse 1 saying, right? Um, he's saying that there's those inside of the community of faith, or he's claiming to be inside of the community of faith that are denying these core teachings. that are false teachers. And why they're of the world is because they've decided that God needs to conform to the world's idea of God. And they've decided to start teaching this kind of thing, which denies, in that context, the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Which is to say they've made a palatable God. A God without teeth. You know? A God that has lost any kind of potency for the sake of being liked uh, by those around them and being owned more easily by those around them. I put a quote in your bulletin at the the beginning um, by N.T. Wright, and let me read read it for you in its entirety. It says this, Left to myself, the God I want is a God who will give me what I want. He, or more likely it, will be a projection of my desires. At the grosser level, this will lead me to one of the more obvious pagan gods or goddesses, who offer their devotees money or sex or power. All idols started out life as the God somebody wanted. At a more sophisticated level, the God I want will be a God who lives up to my intellectual expectations. I want this God because he or it will underwrite my intellectual arrogance. We, a lot of us know that God, don't we? Uh, He will boost my sense of being a refined modern thinker. The net result is that I become God. And this God I've made becomes my puppet. Nobody falls down on their face before the God they wanted. Nobody trembles at the word of a homemade God. Nobody goes out with the fire in their belly to heal the sick, to clothe the naked, to teach the ignorant, to feed the hungry because of the God they wanted. 
They're more likely to stay at home with their feet up. Can such a God really be God? And John says, no. No. That's not a God. The God that you make out of your own desires, out of your own wants, to be more palatable to who you think God should be, or your neighbors think God should be, is simply not God. God always is challenging us. He's never letting us off easy, allowing us to just shape him into what we want him to be. And this is what John is warning these churches about. And it is a warning that we should heed this morning. Okay, finally you, and I'm going to finish up here and it'll be fairly quick. Verse 4. Little children, which is a term he's used for this congregation, these congregations a number of times, term of endearment. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I think that's sort of just the big temptation, right? It's the temptation of Elisha's servant. You know, to open the door in the morning and to step out of your door and to go, ah! I don't think God can come through. And so I got to change I got to buy in to what everybody else is doing because he's not going to actually protect me when so-and-so is making fun of me and laughing at me or when my bank account is just too low or whatever the fear is that you have going on. It is the fear that leads you to the temptation to go, ah, I know this is a prophet of God that I'm with, but this is too scary. Maybe I should just go in and give myself over to the Syrians and be done with this whole thing. Do you know what I'm saying? John knows this temptation that we have to give up on the things of God, to give ourselves over to some other thing in the world and to give up. And he says, don't do it. Don't do it. He says, he who is in you, the true living God is greater than he who's in the world. You give up on him You lose. It's not worth it. The one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's stronger. He's more powerful. Nothing can hold him down. Not Satan, sin, and death. Not the powers of Rome or the philosophies of ancient Greece and Asia Minor. Nothing that we have today is greater than the Lord. Nothing. Test the spirits. But don't give up. Don't give up on this God. Who loves you so much that he takes on flesh for you. God, the one who speaks the world into being, taking your sins upon himself. That's how much he loves you. John says, he's greater than the things of this world. 
He will always be greater than the things of this world. If we could just have our eyes opened like Elisha's servant long ago, our temptations would, we would think they're the most foolish things. There's no way we would give up on this God. If we could see how much he loves us and how powerful he is and how he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Brothers and sisters, don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on this confession of your faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and he will come again. That God came in the flesh for you. It may be foolishness to our neighbors, as it was to the Greeks long ago there living in Asia Minor. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the Let me pray for us. Lord, as uh, Calvin said long ago, our hearts are idle factories. We, we make lots of other gods more palatable to our desires and our wants. What a joke they are. God, I pray that you'd Teach us to be a people that test the spirits and test the teaching. God, I pray that we'd see the foolishness of um, making you into someone who's so much more palatable to our desires. Taking the edges off of how you speak to us and challenge us. God, I pray that we would see you at work and that that we wouldn't give up on the long uh, fight of faith. These people that heard this text long ago are no different than us. Maybe the temptations are slightly different, but Lord, our, uh, our desires to be liked, and to be accepted, and all of that's the same. I pray for us here, uh, listening this morning here in this room or maybe uh, online or wherever, Lord, I pray, I pray that, uh, that you'd move in our hearts, that we would see your beauty and your glory and you'd open our eyes to see how you're at work and that we would be deeply convinced and live a life of this conviction that he who is in us is greater than he is in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.